This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and thanks for joining the program today. We're dealing with a subject that, to put it mildly, can very easily be headache material. When I asked a friend after last week's program whether he had understood what I had been talking about, he shook his head in a bemused fashion. But, he said, he liked Thich Nhat Hanh's poem Froglessness, which we ended the program with. The first fruition of the practice is the attainment of froglessness. When a frog is put on the centre of a plate, she will jump out of the plate after just a few seconds. If you put the frog back again on the centre of the plate, she will again jump out. You have so many plans. There's something you want to become. Therefore, you always want to make a leap, a leap forward. It is difficult to keep the frog still on the centre of the plate. You and I both have Buddha nature in us. This is encouraging. But you and I both have frog nature in us. That is why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness, is its name. Actually, I included the poem not because it had anything in particular to say about the emptiness and dependent arising we'd been discussing in some depth, but just for light relief. Because, as my friend indicated, understanding dependent arising itself is difficult enough, never mind delving into its intimate relationship with emptiness. But both the froggy poem and dependent arising have something to do with what Ajahn Brahm, the famous Australian monk, calls the biggest thing in the world. Well, what do you think that is? Ajahn Brahm explains in his delightful book, Opening the Door of Your Heart, and he writes, The daughter of a friend from my college days was in her first year at primary school. Her teacher asked a large class of five-year-olds, What is the biggest thing in the world? My daddy, said one small girl. An elephant, answered a young boy, who had recently been to the zoo. A mountain, replied another. My friend's young child said, My eye is the biggest thing in the world. The class went quiet as they all tried to understand the little girl's answer. What do you mean? asked her teacher, equally perplexed. Well, began the miniature philosopher, My eye can see her daddy. It can see an elephant. It can also see a mountain and many other things as well. Since all this can fit into my eye, my eye must be the biggest thing in the world. Wisdom, says Ajahn Brahm, is not learning, but seeing clearly what can, can never be taught. With much respect to my friend's young daughter, I would extend her insight a little further. It's not your eye, but your mind that is the biggest thing in the world. Your mind can see all that your eye can see, and it can see more that is supplied by your imagination. It can also know sounds, which your eye can never see, and no touch, both real and made of dream stuff. 
your mind can also know what lies outside your five senses. Because everything that can be known can fit into your mind. Your mind must be the biggest thing in the world. The mind contains all. Many scientists and their supporters assert that the mind is merely a byproduct of the brain. So in question time after my talks, I am often asked, does the mind exist? If so, where? Is it in the body or is it outside? Or is it everywhere and all over? Where is the mind? To answer this question, says Ajahn Brahm, I conduct a simple demonstration. I ask my audience, if you are happy right now, raise your right hand, please. If you are unhappy, even a little, please raise your left hand. Most people raise their right hand, some truly, the rest out of pride. Now I continue, those who are happy, please point to that happiness with your right index finger. Those who are unhappy, please point to that unhappiness with your left index finger. Locate it for me. My audience begin to wave their fingers pointlessly up and down. Then they glance around at their neighbors in similar confusion. When they get the message, they laugh. Happiness is real. Unhappiness is true. There is no doubt that these things exist. But you cannot locate these realities anywhere in your body, anywhere outside of your body, or anywhere at all. That is because happiness and unhappiness are part of the territory exclusive to the mind. They belong to the mind like flowers and weeds belong to the garden. The fact that flowers and weeds exist proves that the garden exists. Just In just the same way, the fact that happiness and unhappiness exists proves that the mind exists. The discovery that you cannot point to happiness or unhappiness shows you cannot locate the mind in three-dimensional space. Indeed, remembering that the mind is the biggest thing in the world, the mind cannot be in three-dimensional space, but three-dimensional space is within the mind. The mind is the biggest thing in the world. It contains the universe. Well, do you believe what Ajahn Brahm says? Is the mind the biggest thing in the universe? If it is, then we have a pretty enormous frog jumping around within us. And it becomes imperative that one way or another we tame this frog because who knows where it's going to leap next, carrying us with it. We could land up in a very fetid pool with the stinkiest water and rotting vegetation and all sorts of animal poo. And that is why Thich Nhat Hanh says our first attainment of practice is froglessness, or if you like, bringing this jumping gargantuan thing we call mind under control. Now you won't find Lama Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Galuk school of Tibetan Buddhism, anywhere near as playful as Thich Nhat Hanh or Ajahn Brahm. But he was also very concerned with froglessness and finding the Buddha nature within us. In his text, The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, which we've been following, he points to the three accomplishments that we absolutely need to attain for Buddhahood, that is, renunciation, bodhicitta, and the wisdom realizing the nature of reality. In talking about dependent arising and emptiness, we are, of course, focused on the third of these, the wisdom understanding how reality exists. So that is what we've been concentrating on for the last few weeks. Now, however, before we continue, let's set our motivation for today as we usually do, 
returning to the second principal aspect, bodhicitta, for inspiration. Bodhicitta is, of course, the intention to attain enlightenment, to be of the greatest benefit to all beings. And if we can have such a motivation, our actions will result in enormous positive potential or merit on our minds. So let's go for that. But if it's too much for you, please think that this program should become the cause for your own liberation and enlightenment. Thank you. Now referring to merit or positive potential, in his commentary on the three principal aspects of the path, Denma Locha Rinpoche, the great master who passed away late last year, said that even to think about the nature of reality as described in the Buddhist teachings, we need a lot of positive potential. So if you have been following these programs, especially while we have been talking about dependent arising and emptiness, you must have accumulated a storehouse of merit in the past. Then Malocha Rinpoche says, So as is further mentioned by Arya Deva in the 400 verses, for a person who doesn't have much merit or positive potential, that individual is one for whom the mere speculation of emptiness is something which is very far away from their being, from their mind. In other words, they are not really interested in this mode of phenomena. However, for somebody who has a little more merit, let's say that they have a doubt towards the mode of, it, of phenomena. Perhaps there is natural or autonomous existence. Perhaps not. Let's say they have the doubt which is known as the doubt leaning towards the truth or leaning towards the true meaning, that phenomena don't have any inherent existence. For that person, they acquire a tremendous amount of positive potential just through that doubt. As Aryadeva mentions in his book, just having that doubt is enough to tear the three worlds asunder. That is to say, this reasoning, this doubt, which is tending towards the fact, is one which has the ability to not only remove but to tear to shreds any notion that the three worlds exist inherently. Thus one is able to remove, through this, the seed of the cycle of existence. And through that then, the whole of samsara for that individual becomes something which is withered and then finally non-existent. Now, of course, I cannot say what the effect of our discussion so far has had on your mind. But even if you have only partially understood the arguments for dependent arising and emptiness, you are more than making rips in the notion that things exist inherently. And if you continue to examine and determine the nature of reality, you will eventually see the interconnectedness, the interdependence of all things, and hence the lack of their independent inherent existence. Rinpoche advises, however, that once we have even the doubt tending towards the fact, we should repeatedly think about the reasonings leading to understanding the ultimate nature of existence. There are various reasonings, and you may remember we went through some in the commentary by Geshe Sonam Rinchen a couple of programs back. For the last couple of weeks, we examined the verses in Lama Tsongkhapa's text that read, Appearances are infallible dependent origination. Voidness is free of assertions. As long as these two understandings are seen as separate, one has not yet realized the intent of the Buddha. When these two realizations are simultaneous and concurrent, from a mere sight of infallible dependent origination comes certain knowledge that completely destroys all modes of mental grasping. At that time, the analysis of the profound view is complete. Now, I think we have said enough about them over the last few programs, and I hope you got some understanding of their meaning. 
So let's now go on to the next verse. It reads, In addition, appearances clear away the extreme of inherent existence. Emptiness clears away the extreme of non-existence. When you understand the arising of cause and effect from the viewpoint of emptiness, you are not captivated by either of the extreme views. Now perhaps you need to have a Panadol ready because we are once again entering headache territory, especially if you find it difficult to get your head around dependent arising and emptiness. Both Geshe Sonam Rinchen and Denma Lodger Rinpoche point out some, something out of the ordinary with this verse. They say that this is a unique presentation of the Prasangika school because all the other schools say that when something appears to us, it proves that that thing does in fact exist. If you see a licorice stick, for instance, there must be something there, right? It might not be an inherently existing licorice stick, but it does exist in some way. The Prasangika Majumika school reasons the other way around. It says that when something appears to our mind, it actually proves that thing does not exist. That is, it does not exist inherently. Thus the line, in addition, appearances clear away the extreme of inherent existence. As Denma Lodgerimbeshe explains, the reasoning set forth here is that if something appears to our senses or to our consciousness, at the moment that appears, we understand that object in a causal way. That is to say, it appears as an object because there is an object possessor. It appears in a certain way because of certain causes and conditions. So we are seeing that object as an object which is lacking any kind of autonomous existence. Thus, just through the object appearing to our mind, any notion of the object existing in and of itself becomes, as the text reads, cleared away or removed. He is saying that if something appears to us, it can only do so through causes, conditions and our mind apprehending it. Therefore, it does not exist as an independent thing. It depends on causes, conditions and the mind. And it does not have a real, true existence as our mind actually grasps at it. Then the other schools would posit that the emptiness or selflessness of an object shows that it does not exist inherently. The Prasangika Majamika school, our contraire, says emptiness proves that something actually has to exist. Otherwise, how could it be empty? Here again is Denma Lodgerimbeshe. Then, emptiness clears away the extreme of non-existence. What is meant by that is in order for us to talk about the emptiness of something, that something has to exist as the basis of our discussion or analysis. So, for example, if we use the example of a sprout, and a sprout being empty of inherent existence, the basis upon which we are going to prove or set forth emptiness is the sprout, and it is negating a false perception of that sprout. He explains, we cannot talk about the emptiness of a non-existent phenomena, for example saying the emptiness of the horn of a rabbit, or the emptiness of the child of a barren woman, because for that we don't have any basis on which to prove emptiness. If there is no basis upon which to prove the lack of inherent existence or the emptiness of a false perception, then we cannot possibly prove that. I hope that's clear. In short, the schools other than the Prasangika Majamika say that when things appear to us, it must show that they do somehow exist, that they are not non-existent. They say also that things being selfless or empty 
shows that they do not exist as they appear, that is, as real, independent, and existing purely inherently from their own side. The Prasangika Majamika, however, says that when things appear to us, it shows that they do not exist inherently, because they must necessarily appear due to causes and conditions. They cannot appear suddenly out of nowhere with their own inherent independent kind of existing. And then conversely, things being empty, says the Prasangika Majamika, means they must exist, because a non-existing thing cannot be empty of inherent existence. To be empty, it must actually exist. We can take as a gross example a coffee cup. For a coffee cup to be empty of coffee, it must be a cup in the first place. You could not say that a non-existent coffee cup could be empty of coffee, because it could never ever have coffee in it. Unless maybe it was created in mime by an artist like Marcel Marceau. Similarly, for a coffee cup to be empty of inherent existence, it must first appear as a coffee cup. If it did not exist at all, it couldn't ever be empty of inherent existence. Then the lines, when you understand the arising of cause and effect from the viewpoint of voidness, you are not captivated by either view. This indicates that when we experientially know emptiness, that's when we know all things exist only dependent on causes and conditions and so on. They have no independent inherent existence. And we simultaneously see how cause and effect works, then we've found the right view. That means we're not caught by the view of permanence or annihilation. Denma Lotcha explains that the view of permanence means the ignorance or confusion which grasps at true or autonomous existence, or in simpler terms, grasps onto the object which we are trying to negate. In other words, how ordinary beings automatically see objects, as though those objects have their own independent existence. Rinpoche says the view of annihilation is a view that cuts away too much so that there is no ability for the workings of cause and effect and so forth. Such a view would say that nothing actually exists at all, and therefore, how can cause and effect operate? In the Tibetan lineage, we are often cautioned when meditating on the nature of existence to be very careful, because when we look for something in our meditation and can't find it, our mind easily latches on to the understanding that it doesn't really exist at all. Then on that basis, the basis of nothing actually existing, we can come to the conclusion that cause and effect cannot, op cannot operate, and so we can do whatever we want. Our behavior can subsequently become very negative. Thinking things have no existence at all is the view of annihilation, and it is taught that once we have become convinced of this view, it is very much more difficult to arrive at the right view than if we start with a view of eternalism, the view that things truly exist, which most of us have right now. Denma Lodge Rinpoche then goes on to talk about the two truths, that is, conventional truth and ultimate truth. You may remember from last week that Geshe Sonam Rinchen said that dependent arising and cause and effect represents conventional truth, while emptiness represents ultimate truth. So it's quite worthwhile to take in what Denma Lodge Rinpoche says because it has a direct bearing on what we're talking about. He says, Everything that the enlightened ones spoke of leads back to the understanding of the two levels of truth. Since you have two levels of reality, 
you have to have something being subdivided or categorized into two categories. So you can ask yourself, what is being subdivided? And the answer is knowables or objects of knowledge. Here, a knowable is simply something that is existing. To exist means to be knowable, and to be knowable means to exist. Rinpoche cautions that not all knowables are existence, though. He uses the example of the ideas of antlers on a rabbit. Sure, such an idea can come to mind, but that doesn't mean such a thing exists. To say knowables are existence means that they must be known by a valid awareness, not just any awareness. In Sanskrit, ultimate truth is paramatha satya. Now, taking that word apart, artha means that that which is known, and parama refers to the mind of a high spiritual being, and satya is truth. Says Rinpoche, something is truth when it is known to be true by the mind of a high spiritual being. Such a mind, by definition, knows the ultimate truth. So what about this other truth, the conventional surface surface level of truth, asked Rinpoche. How does one come to understand this second of the two truths if the ultimate reality is understood in this way? This conventional truth is samvirti sattva. Samvirti is totally covering up. And covering here means ordinary awareness covering that which is real. Here again, satya is truth, but truth for an ordinary awareness. In other words, all the things that are true for ordinary minds like our own, that are taken as real by them, are conventional truths. Therefore, truth for an ordinary covering mind. Rimsha continues, In this scholastic tradition, we say that anything that is known will always be included in one of these two levels of reality. Anything not covered by these two levels is beyond the sphere of what is knowable. There is deep logic here that these two categories, the two truths, are an exhaustive description of all that there is. Here's how it works. Truth and lie go together, don't they? If a person makes a statement that mirrors reality, then that statement is true. However, a statement not mirroring reality is a lie. The ultimate level of reality is mirrored in the mind of awareness that knows it, in a way that is not lying. This necessarily brings out the situation that all conventional truths are lying to the awareness that knows them, about the way that they appear. Similarly, ordinary things appearing to ordinary awareness must be said to be lying to that ordinary awareness. So now, if you remove that conventional truth, that lying way of seeing, the ultimate truth will become apparent. Rinpoche says, You are, by removing that truth, positively showing the truth of the awareness of the ultimate. That ultimate, appearing to an awareness that knows it is not lying to that awareness, is the suchness of things, the ultimate reality of things. He goes on to say that there are various interpretations of the two truths according to the various Buddhist schools of philosophy. However, in what the Tibetans regard as the most profound school, the middle way consequentialist school, or Prasangika Majamika, he says, nobody or nothing anywhere has anything that inherently makes it what it is. Nothing has its own personal mark, he says. Everything exists simply through language, through ideas, 
the absence of something, the total absence, the total not being, non-existence of anything that is not there through the power of language and, th- and thought is shunyata, emptiness, the ultimate truth. He continues, When one talks of an ultimate truth, of emptiness, one has a focus. One is looking at objects and finding them to be totally empty. What one is looking at and finding to be empty is very important. The identification of things first becomes an important thing to do because the ultimate truth isn't something immediately apprehensible by our senses. We can't see it. We have to arrive at it through our thought processes. And in order to do this, we have to use reasoning. This reasoning takes as its point of departure certain things or basis. So we must identify these in the first instance. He then refers to the line in the Heart Sutra which says that Avalokiteshvara looked at the five aggregates and found them to be empty of inherent existence. These five aggregates which make us up are form, feelings, discrimination, compositional factors and consciousness. Now we've gone through them in previous programs so I'm not going to describe them here again. But Rinpoche uses them as an example of things or basis to demonstrate what he's talking about. For Avalokiteshvara The five aggregates were the basis or starting point from which to investigate emptiness. Rinpoche says, One can only focus on the reality of emptiness when one has seen the size and dimensions of what one is refuting or denying. He goes on, There are many different reasons a person can use to come to understand emptiness. But here we meet with a king of all reasonings, dependent arising, because being produced or arising dependently is the reason for everything's emptiness. Using this reason, one avoids the extreme of nihilism because dependent arising shows something is there. Nevertheless, because it is a reason that shows emptiness, it also removes eternalism. He then explains that once we have seen the nature of reality with one object, we will not have to go through the same analysis with any other objects. That understanding for that single object will automatically carry over to all other objects. As the great Arya Deva said, anyone who gets a view into one reality gets a view into all realities. And now we come to the last verse of the text, which reads, In this way, when you have realized the exact points of the three principal aspects of the path, by depending on solitude, generate the power of joyous effort and quickly accomplish the final goal, my child. This is an exhortation to go into a quiet, undisturbed place, a place of solitude, and put strong effort into the practice that leads to the realization of these three main aspects of the path. Then Malachi Rinpoche points out that quickly accomplishing the final goal refers to achieving the various states of nirvana, and my child refers to Ngawan Drakpa, who was a very close disciple of Lama Tsongkhapa. And now we've come to the end of the three principal aspects of the path by Lama Tsongkhapa. Demolocha Rinpoche ended his commentary to this text with a dedication of merit. Now, even if you've only listened to one or two programs in this series, you have generated some positive potential or merit which will contribute to your happiness in the future. It is important, therefore, that our positive potential not be destroyed by negative emotion, so we seal it, as it were, with dedication. Who should we dedicate to? Rinpoche says, Nowadays in the world there are a lot of problems. We're living in a very degenerate time. 
So it would be good if we could direct our positive potential towards the well-being of all other sentient beings, to the joy and bliss of others. And now we've come to the end of the program. So thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll be with us again next time. Have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.